I didn't think necessarily I wanted to work in government, but I liked being in-house. I liked being in a room as the lawyer in the room and bringing such skills and experience as you had to the table and working with other people with very dis- different disciplines. And I found that, found that quite stimulating and probably a little bit different to being in a firm where although you're working with your clients, you know, most days you're surrounded by other lawyers. You're often working with other lawyers. There's also a degree to which, you know, if you fell over, another corporate lawyer would sort of slot in and take your place. So, yeah, I sort of got a little bit of a taste for in-house and so started to look out for in-house roles towards the end of, end of my time at Clever Chance. Welcome to the Council Podcast, a podcast about life as an in-house lawyer. I'm your host, Mel Scott, Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I am passionate about all things in-house and am so excited to share insights, interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. My guest today is Ben White. Ben joins me from the UK where he is the founder of Crafty Council, a digital media startup that helps legal professionals learn, achieve and share. Crafty Council was born of an idea that Ben had while he was working as in-house counsel at a fashion e-commerce company. The leap of faith required to go from lawyer to business owner is an exciting but scary one. And Ben shares memories of this journey openly. He also provides inspiring and practical advice for those that might be thinking of doing the same thing. Ben is super passionate about creating community and creating a space for in-house lawyers to share stories. In that way, we are kindred spirits, and it was a true delight to spend this time talking with him. Enjoy this episode with Ben White. Thank you so much for joining me on your Saturday morning. Thanks, Mel. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. My absolute pleasure. I've been meaning to reach out to you for some time because we connected last year and I've, I've just been following in, I suppose, the community that you have and the group that you have online and love what you're doing there. I think it's, I think it's world class really and, and it's, it's such a testament to your skill of community building. So I love what you do. I had to bring you on because not only are you now working and building community around in-house counsel, but of course you were in-house counsel many moons ago. So I'd, I'd love to just understand your career path to and through in-house practice but I will ask if you had a limitless credit card and you didn't have to pay it back I will note that but you could only spend it at one shop what shop would that be and why? Mel you've learned your lesson from your last interview. I have and thank you for listening to it. (laughs) Jody called me out so I couldn't not amend the question. I thought she made a fair comment, you know? I yeah. agree. I, <laughs> so, I totally yeah. agree. So a limitless credit card, but you don't have to pay it back. Crucial detail. So yeah, I was thinking about this. I think with the year that we have had in the UK with coronavirus and here we are back into February and still not out of lockdown yet, although there seems to be a, a bit of a roadmap, which is a bit of a buzzword in the UK at the moment. I think I'd love to do, if I can uh, stretch the definition of shop, and I would love to spend on a holiday and a holiday with lots of the people who are uh, important to me. So I'd love like some sprawling, self-catering network of villas where all of our 
family and extended family could get together and some of our closest friends and just hang out for a week. That would be great, maybe after the pandemic and vaccinations, uh, but that would be my, my dream splurge. Mm. Are you thinking summer or winter? Oh, I'm thinking I'm thinking summer and uh, there's literally there's a place that we've been to in 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 the southwest of England where they have like lots of little cottages and I'm sort of imagining you know something like that so every family with their own little cottage getting together for barbecues or going to the beach or, or something that would be that feels so sadly it just feels so different to the life that we've been living for most of the past year and that would be that would be a real pleasure. Oh, that's lovely. And it will happen. You will get there. Well, fingers crossed. Absolutely. And I love that answer. That's wonderful. Let's get to the legals. I'd love to start not necessarily from the beginning because we've we've only got limited time. But if we take you back to your first legal job, I'd love to ask you what that was and then how you found your way to in-house practice. Uh, yeah. So I worked for Clipper Charts. That was my first legal job. So as... Um, Probably most of your listeners will know, big London headquartered international law firm. I worked there for about seven years. So I did my traineeship there and I I became a corporate lawyer. So I did quite a lot of M&A, joint ventures, working with boards, the usual sort of corporate lawyer, corporate lawyer stuff. So yeah, good good experience, hard at times, sure. as anyone who's, who's done corporate law in, in that sort of firm will, will appreciate but really great people, learned an awful lot, and some really interesting times. Travelled, got to travel to the States, to Chile, all around Europe. I did a trainee secondment to, to our office in Shanghai. So lots and lots of really positive stuff about that experience. But I started to conclude towards the end of that time, I didn't want to sort of stay there for the long haul. I, for various reasons, thought I wanted to take a different path, you know, sticking around and trying to become a partner. And I... I'd done a comment in-house. I'd, I'd gone to work for a, a department of the of the UK government, which was, which was then called the Shareholder Executive. It's now called UK Government Investments. And they basically, they do some privatisation work. They hold the, the UK's interests or shares in various sort of arm's length organisations like our company's house, our company's registry, land registry, post office uh, and various other things like that. So I worked there for about nine months on a comment from Clifford Chance and I, I really enjoyed the experience. I, I, I didn't think necessarily I wanted to work in government but I liked being in-house. I liked being in a room as the lawyer in the room and bringing such skills and experience as you had to the table and working with other people with very dis- different disciplines. And I found that, found that quite stimulating and probably a little bit different to being in a firm where although you're working with your clients, you know, most days you're surrounded by other lawyers. You're often working with other lawyers. And there's also a degree to which, you know, if you fell over, another corporate lawyer would sort of slot in and take your place. So, yeah, I sort of got a little bit of a taste for in-house and so started to look out for in-house roles towards the end of, end of my time at Clever Chance. So seven years strikes me as quite a long time in that in that environment, which is is high pressured and very intense. And I I can't help but wonder how you maintained a, a level of, of well being and resilience during that time with all of that travel. How did you kind of manage that for for a long period of time? I don't. I never sort of felt. I think. When you've worked in a transactional team, like corporate, which is what I was in, uh, then it's sort of, 
as you will appreciate, it sort of comes and fits and spurts. So you have really busy patches, you have down periods, and I was learning an awful lot. So I don't think I was doing anything particularly different from what lots of other corporate lawyers have done and, and do do. And also, although it was seven years, it was sort of punctuated by a sort of a period of doing quite different stuff. So six months in China, nine months on secondment to that government department, and lots of different deals with lots of different clients. So there was sort of a lot to, a lot of stimulation in there. But I guess one difference, right, and I think a lot of people, a lot of people find this, is that towards the end of that period, my wife and I had our first child, and that starts to change things a little bit, right? That doing all the all the late nights and the sort of the unpredictability in particular, I think, was I found harder than the the workload per se, but the sort of the never being able to completely switch off because something could happen. I think that gets a little bit harder as you start to have a family and you're yeah. starting to make, you realizing you know, the decisions are not just yours and you have more responsibility at home as well. So that, people make that work, right? But that did start to come into the mix as I thought about what to do next. I'd love to ask how you made the jump to your first in-house gig and, and how that came about. Yeah, so I've been looking for a while and funny enough, I was just talking with a recruiter about this the other day. I think if I had my time again, I'd be a little bit more proactive. I was quite reactive, which I think is probably quite common. I found myself sort of you know, at midnight in the office waiting for you know the docs are coming from the other side or whatever it is you're waiting on. There's quite a lot of waiting you know, <laughs> yeah. in, in those roles. I found myself you know looking at jobs boards and job adverts and stuff like that, and so I was sort of seeing what was coming up and you know looking for sort of trying to see is there something interesting. I think if I did it again, I'd probably be a bit more ruthless about saying I want to do the following types of things and then maybe actually going out to proactively develop my network in those areas and find find what sorts of roles could be created. But anyway, that's sort of, that's, that's another story. In terms of how I did it, I I looked at a couple of roles. I, I'd spent, as you mentioned, seven years is a long time. So I spent a little while dithering and wondering what to do. I saw roles come up that didn't seem quite perfect. And then something came up, which was for a company called Global Fashion Group, who I ended up going to work for. And I thought they were interesting because I'd started to develop an interest in startups and that whole world. And one thing I thought about what I was doing at Clifford Chance is, although I sort of really liked the, my clients and the work that I was doing, there was this whole sort of movement going on around startups and technology and high growth and all this sort of stuff in the media that you'd, you'd hear about. And I thought I wasn't really part of that. And so as I started to look around, I thought, well, maybe something that has something to do with startups, venture capital, that sort of stuff might be quite fun. And so Global Fashion Group was a venture capital backed e-commerce group, right? So tech, startup-y, but also it was quite big. So they'd raised a huge amount of money from all sorts of different people and it's very international. And I thought, well, if I go there, then... I kind of, it, it sort of still feels like big organization, a bit like Clifford Chance, international, maybe they'll do some corporate stuff. So it felt like I wasn't completely moving away from the background that I had and uh, and such skills as, as I as I might have picked up along the way, but also a little bit startup. So that was the idea. I thought this felt like best of both worlds. And I went and I became the corporate counsel sitting in London for this for this group. Yeah, so that's what it is. And I, and I worked there for a couple of years. 
you know, I imagine it might have been earlier days in, in e-commerce and maybe not what it is today and how we know it, but kind of that, my gosh, that Wild West where everybody's making things up as they go. And, and, and in terms of the legal aspects, things may not have been done before. These particular deals in this setting may not have been done before. Did yeah, you find that there was bit, an element of that? A, a little bit. This wasn't too long ago. So I moved there in 2016. And so I think, so that's now five years ago. I think some of what you say is certainly true. And probably what I found was that as a lawyer in that group, probably we were picking things up from perhaps more Wild West days. I think anyone who's worked in high growth company sort of sees these things where you start to pick up the legacy of maybe decisions that were made a few years beforehand and people were just trying to get stuff done and get it done quickly and the trade that you make at the very beginning of the company is well maybe it's not perfect but frankly we just need to grow fast sometimes that stuff if you make too many of those decisions you can spend quite a lot of time later trying to unpick some of that stuff not necessarily the things that are wrong or bad but often just complicated not the most efficient way of doing things and unpicking that can be quite hard it's often said that it's like building the plane as you're flying and and perhaps just getting things stuck together getting it done bootstrapping it and then coming back later to to, as you say unpick and, and try and redo and put in you know proper process and absolutely there's that trade-off so mm. you know, I can really can quite relate to that experience of uh, that that fast pace where, where time is of the essence and it's a land grab you, you know you're really just trying to go as f- faster than the competitors so yeah and, and I guess the interesting thing about um, that company was without uh, straying into areas that I, that I can't discuss but it was so global, global fashion group was and is a combination of several different e-commerce businesses down the world around the world basically you had six fashion e-commerce businesses with a similar group of shareholders behind them and those shareholders got together and said actually rather than having six independent companies these 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 guys all do broadly the same thing let's combine that all into one group so they put a holding company above the top of it called that global fashion group headquartered it in luxembourg put the main office in london and hired a bunch of people including me to work in the london head office so we were kind of this new group HQ structure over, although the constant debate were we in HQ or were we a sort of service, support service office, and over the top of of six startups, which were already sort of going great guns. So the challenge was actually often this, a real mix of cultures within those businesses. So we were doing startup at the same time as doing effectively post-merger integration um, across yeah. some very different businesses. Some of which your listeners might know. So one of the businesses they own is uh, called The Iconic, which is oh, a, a, yes. you might be familiar with. The Iconic was kind of, I guess, one of the jewels of the crown. So, so yeah, so The Iconic is the Australian business of this group called Global Fashion Group. And there's an equivalent one in South America, an equivalent one in Russia. And there were equivalents in India and the Middle East, but, but we sold those. And I, I worked on those while I, was, uh, while I was there. And one in Southeast Asia. So... Wow, truly global. It sounds very glamorous when I hear fashion in, in any, if <laughs> for any business. Was was it like that? Or did you have any in, any interesting 
runway shows or fashionistas coming into the office. I don't know. I'm just I'm getting such a glamorous vibe. <laughs> uh, I think just I'm sorry to dispel you what you're imagining there, Mel. But sitting in our office in London, it wasn't that glamorous. It felt a it felt a little more sort of corporate corporate back office rather than rather than the fashion runways. I'm afraid we did have there was a, we had a sort of like global buying team who sat in an office and we were all open plan. So like they were basically our dose of our dose of glamour. So if we want a little bit, bit of glamour, you'd sort of go over to to their desk, and they even at one point like had a had a rail put up with some of the some of the clothes that were being sold by some of the businesses. But no, sadly, not that much. I did go out to visit the when we we're in the process of working on divesting our Middle Eastern business. I flew out there. I spent a bit of time in Dubai and got to see what they were up to. So not so much the glamorous side, but actually like the e-commerce side. So I went around the warehouse, saw how, how all that worked. In that case, at that time, completely manual. So no automation. There's a lot of a lot of interesting things about that opportunity by the sounds of it. Uh, on the flip side, I'd, I'd love to ask maybe what some of the challenges might have been when you were in that tech startup and, and VC-backed environment. Well, I, I guess there were a few. And Part of this goes to then why I ended up starting Crofty Council. So a, a great team, Global Fashion Group, but we, it was complicated, right? What I now know is called legal operations, but back then I didn't even know that phrase. I think that was a, that was a challenge. We had a new holding structure, a new team in London, and a bunch of lawyers and other sort of compliance and risk professionals there. And just trying to get stuff done, keep the business moving. We had a lot of financing transactions while I was there, both equity and debt, lots of internal reorganization. And that's even before you get into dealing with commercial contracts at a group level and a subsidiary level. It was quite complicated. And I, although I thought everyone was was super and working really hard, I did have this feeling of some of the stuff that we did, I thought has is is this always the best way like have other have other legal departments figured this out already it felt like we were often trying to figure things out for first principles that probably someone else had cracked and that started to lead me down the road of setting up what eventually became crafty council i remember feeling a little bit isolated in our team and not being able to see maybe what good looked like elsewhere and being very reliant in terms of sort of knowledge information training being very reliant on our law firms. We, would we get client briefings from them that covered the right stuff? Uh, would we get invited to breakfast seminars or what have you? And I thought there was probably room for something which started more with the client in mind. And I was watching a lot of TED Talks at the time. And I thought maybe, maybe there's something here which can be a mix of something that feels fun and digital and exciting like TED, but also made for legal probably made in-house counsel in mind and maybe we can bring that all together and address some of these things and help people see what good looks like so that was the that was sort of the idea behind crafty council and i started started working on that while i was while i was doing that in-house role probably for about a year there was some version of crafty council that existed at that time really focused on video content when we started and the community stuff came in that came in later and that's now become as you indicated at the outset probably really core to what we did I love that you were just really scratching your own itch there, which is often the best way for these side hustles to start because they're, you know, you're in it. And I suppose we we can feel isolated from other in-house counsel and 
we're, we're a little island within our own business sometimes to bring everyone together and to share and, and, and as you say, to share and to learn from each other. There's a real power in that. And yeah, you saw the space and, and you, you dove right in. So I, I certainly congratulate you for that. And I've been the benefit of that content. And I found you through some video content, which struck me instantly as professional and, and highly polished I suppose in the way that it was edited and I hadn't seen something like this before and it was the SAS contracts deconstructed piece. I remember it so clearly. Mm. And I I remember because I... It struck me as so fit for purpose. I had never heard legal professionals talking about this particular issue and and it was just speaking straight to my heart because that's the space that I, I operate in. And, you know, I actually thought I was going a little bit crazy uh, trying to negotiate these these SAS-style contracts where people are, are not, if they're not familiar with them, they want to treat them in a in a more traditional sense. And it just, it just doesn't work. And it's really like a square peg round hole. And to hear others with a similar experience explaining why I wasn't going crazy. <laughs> there was so there was such a relief in that. And I shared it internally with our team because I was just like, guys, we we are on the right track. We we are <laughs> We're not alone. We are we're not alone. And there's such power in that. So so the video content is is certainly how I came to find Crafty Council and then and I have seen it, you know, you have developed and and brought in a real feature around the community piece and and using some great tech to to do that. I I'd love to know at what point you took the jump and that leap of faith to to leave, you know, your your stable full-time salaried position and and go into essentially founding something that wasn't there before. So I would say always say on this, I wish that there was like one clear moment where it was so there's some sort of external validation that made it so clear that Crafty Council was just going to be such a success that I couldn't couldn't continue with my day job and I just had to go and do it. And I sort of, the truth was that I sort of waited for that to happen for quite a while, thinking, oh, you know, I'll just wait for that. Something will happen which make it really obvious. And then, you know, I can tell everyone that, you know, don't worry, this is so clear now that, that I should do this. But it never happened. Um, so... I, I, I lasted about a year of doing both and doing more and more Crafty Council stuff and credit to my to my old boss who was extremely understanding that I was doing sort of more and more of this stuff. But I fundamentally I reached a point where I was also starting to look at what my next move might be possibly outside of that company. And I thought, you know, if I why would I move to another in-house legal role when I when I built this thing up and I thought for a while I wanted to start my own business. And I thought, you know, having having done this and built a little bit of a brand and learned a bit about how to create this video content, and it feels like there's a there's a demand there, to give it all up now, well, that's really saying I'm never going to do this. And I sort of thought of it that, of that way around, that you know, was I prepared to make the decision that I, I wouldn't really do it because... Why would you go that far and then abandon it unless, mm. unless you know, you, you're all talk and you're never really going to be an entrepreneur? So I thought I may as well try. And I, I think lawyers tend to be very risk averse. So I thought a lot about risk. And I thought, what, 
rather than thinking about risk in the abstract that something might go wrong, actually, what is the analysis here? So worst case scenario, what's it going to cost to me in terms of financial cost and the opportunity cost of sort of missing out on career progression and all of that? And I sort of felt I was able to put to sort of box that in a bit. So it certainly wasn't risk free, but I thought, you know, basically the, the foregone salary is X. And yes, some cost on career, but could I, you know, if, if the company goes bust, can I sell this on a CV as something that is attractive to a startup or a VC mm. and say, you know, look, Absolutely. you know, I tried it and I have some war stories. At least I could tell, you know, our, our clients what not to do. So mm-hmm. that's how I looked at it. And, and I'd, I guess I'd encourage that approach to lawyers who sort of think about a similar thing i think you know risk definitely exists but you can get kind of risk paralysis by just thinking too much in the abstract and i think try to drill down on really what could go wrong and that helped me to make the decision and think you know it at least there are some parameters here and also what could go right yeah. I mean, how exciting. <laughs> Good point. It, it, what could what you know, what's what's the best that could happen here? How how exciting to be in that position and you, you had you had the goodwill and you had started to build that brand and and you turned it into something and, as it is today and and will continue to grow, I have no doubt. And I have to ask, I mean, looking back 2-3 years later, do you have any regrets? I've got no regrets about making the decision. As any honest entrepreneur will say, I, I would assume, I have made so many mistakes along the way. Right. <laughs> but I would not change. <laughs> I would not change the fundamentals of the decision. And unfortunately, sometimes mistakes are just like, particularly when you're doing something so new and outside of your comfort zone. That's kind of how you learn. So tell us about Crafty Council as it is today. What's what's the offering, and and what's your vision as well for the future? Cool. Okay. So we're a media company, a media startup for legal, and we really do three things. So we have a content publishing business. So mainly video content, as you talked about the the videos that we did with Hodge Gill and Matt Scarf, two SaaS lawyers in London on SaaS. That's a good example. So we do lots of video content, starting to do some written stuff, thinking about podcasting in the future. Um, And it's all for legal mainly of interest to sort of the in-house legal client type community defined broadly. So we have some stuff on technical topics like that SaaS one, but increasingly we do a lot on careers. We do we do content on legal operations, technology, well-being, mental health, that whole side of things. So thing one is content. Thing two is community. And that's really something that we've been going at now for about, in a, in a focused way, for about nine months. So... Going into last year was, well, let me pause there and I'll finish. So we do content community and I'll tell you more about that. And then the final thing is we have a content studio. And what that means is that's actually where we generate revenue as a business. That's where we work with law firms, legal tech companies, recruiters, others in the legal space. And we make content with them. And we either do that as co-branded, uh, co-branded series on Crafty Council. So Crafty Council X, you know, Linklaters, for example, real mm-hmm. example, or we do that on a white label basis. So working with companies who say, hey, we saw that Crafty Council stuff, we've got something slightly different, but could you help bring your understanding of legal plus content and help us with that? So we've sort of ended up making a kind of a, a mini content come marketing agency within this wider media company. 
So that's the three things, content, community, and, and studio. And I was gonna tell you about what we did in 2020 and quite a pivot that we made and a pivot towards community. Should, should I tell you a bit more about that? Absolutely, please do. Cool, so we, I think it's kind of an interesting story for people who particularly have their own businesses and are sort of assessing what the right path is because we changed a lot during 2020. I think the, the fundamental vision and mission has remained pretty consistent, but the way that we're doing it is really different. So to explain that, we went into 2020 pre-COVID um, as a kind of like a Netflix for lawyers was a proposition. So we're all about the content and most of the content was paywalled. And so we were marketing that to mainly to in-house legal teams as like a, a CLE, CLE slash CPD type, so continuing professional development type solution for legal. And we were saying high quality, relevant content, bite-sized, et cetera, et cetera. And we spent a lot of time building up a decent content library to be able to, to market that. And we were developing lots more stuff. So that's how we started 2020. And that was kind of going fine. We had some interesting companies who were sort of early subscribers. We had a decent sales pipeline. But then COVID hit and I thought, well, number one, there's a decent chance that a whole bunch of budgets are about to dry up. But regardless, you know, that could just be a short term thing. Regardless of that, this is a really good moment to make sure are we definitely on the right track. So we did what, frankly, we probably should have done in a more structured way earlier. We went out and spoke to our community, but we didn't know to, we didn't know to call them that yet. We sort of thought in terms of audience, and we gathered a bunch of people who were either paying subscribers to Crafty Council or who weren't, but we thought kind of liked us and were kind of interested that they hadn't bought the subscription, and we ran some um, roundtables with them. And the message that came back was all about community. And pretty much everyone used that word. And right. what we heard was that these legal professionals, what they felt they lacked and what they thought that we brought was a sense of wider community. And they said that's why they liked what we were making at Crafty Council. They weren't seeing this as a kind of tutorial, learning and development, continuing professional development type thing. They were seeing it as an entry point into a community of people who shared similar problems and thought a bit like them and maybe could could help each other. And so that was sort of the first level of thinking. But then the next level was them effectively saying to us, look, if that's what you're doing, you're not making it very easy because you've paywalled most of this content. So even if we've subscribed, we can't, it's, it's difficult to share it because we have to get into who's got a license and who hasn't got a license and some of us don't have budget so we didn't subscribe and also you're just on broadcast there's no way for us to really participate in what you're doing at crafty council we just have to kind of passively watch so that prompted a lot of thinking last year and i think with really useful and fair feedback and so internally and that point we had a few people on the team we looked at different models. We spent a couple of weeks talking about freemium. So, well, can we make more content free? But then we're encouraging people to like buy Crafty Council Premium. And I just concluded that actually, at, you know, maybe one day, but at that stage with you know, very early on our journey, small team, we needed to make this as simple as we could. And going out with mixed messages about this is free, this is paid for, 
was going to be confusing and was probably going to kill it. And so we went totally to the other extreme. So we took away the paywall. We offered prorated refunds to all of our subscribers, which obviously hurt. <laughs> we, we made everything free. And we also really launched community. So we started thinking in those terms, thinking that actually our mission now is to serve the legal community and we help our community to learn to achieve and to share that's our that's our our corporate mission and you'll see it if you visit if you visit our homepage and how that's manifested itself is is that we run a a very regular program of meetups currently all done over zoom for different groups so about 80% in-house counsel but we have some groups that cater to others as well and rather than being sort of ad hoc webinars for example being organized every once in a while it's more like a club so we've got our we've got our tech club for people who are working in high growth startups we've got our legal tech buyers club that we just launched which is in-house counsel who are looking and investing in legal tech but don't quite know where to start we've got a book club which actually is for open, open to everybody. So we've got people from law firms, we've got legal tech, innovation, new law slash LSPs and in-house. We've got an innovators group with a similar similar mix of, of people. So all in, we've got now, I think between eight and 10 meetups that we run a month. They're becoming increasingly global. You've come to some of those. So we're, I mean, we're headquarters in the UK, but we are attracting people and trying to pull people in from around the world. So. Yeah, Australia, we've had Sweden, Hong Kong, Dubai. We're trying to build something which feels authentic, which helps people and which is sustainable. And so far that seems to that seems to have been really popular and it's become I think that's going to be really the core of what we do at at Crafty going forward. So the content bit is still also really important, but the two are working in tandem. So we're finding that Whenever we're trying to make some content, we're actually going first to the community and asking, you know, what do you want? What's interesting? We're using the insights that we're getting from these these community sessions that we're hosting to then inspire the next bit of content. And yeah, so it's all kind of it's all now kind of working together. So that's that's what we're doing: content, community, and then we have our commercial arm through the studios business. As as so much of twenty twenty was about that pivot and that getting the strategy right you ask what the future is uh, like this year it's very much about execution so pushing forward on on each of those areas and trying to basically just create value in something that our community loves ah oh, i love that and you are the, the clubs are fantastic and i've had the pleasure of attending the tech club that's where i slot myself in i thought well that that'll that'll suit me thank you very much and i could not believe the Oh my gosh! Just the the user generated content within the group. Everybody was so knowledgeable and so interested in learning from each other, and we were a concentra- a concentrated group of people who really were in the same situation. And and I was learning from, as you say, people around the world, and 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 just got so much value out of that. I think sometimes we think perhaps you know it's counterintuitive but going niche in in topics and in clubs has an incredible effect because you really get a concentrated value there for for the people who are attending and i yeah i really love what you've done with the clubs and i would encourage anybody listening to go and have a look and and 
have, I mean, what is the best way to, to find out about the clubs? Because I would recommend them to anyone in-house. Yeah, it, it's interesting you say that. We we have some work to do on our user journey. So <laughs> frankly, if you if you go on our website at the moment, it, it we've had feedback that maybe it could be a little more simple. You but, need to get on the mailing list. That's, that's yeah, yeah. My, so, that was my gateway. <laughs> right. So basically go, go to our website, which is craftycouncil.co.uk. It's .co.uk because someone else owns .com. <laughs> ah, shame. <laughs> but we haven't been able to buy it yet. If you're out there, we want it. You're not using it. So anyway, so craftycouncil.co.uk and you'll see on, on the homepage, there's a little blurb about our community and there's a link to a Google form there. So you can go to that and that will tell you what the clubs are and input your details, put your details there. And we review once a week who signed up and we'll do our level best to try and slot you in to, to one of the groups. The other thing is that also on the website, you can, you can sign up to our newsletter, which we send once a week. That has lots of stuff on the what we're doing in the community and it also has updates on the content that we're making. But we're also, we also try and always have quite a lot on what we're seeing going on elsewhere. So we're, we're trying not to be one of those newsletters which just talks about our stuff. But if we see interesting things happening in legal, particularly like things that people in our community are doing, then that's on our newsletter as well. The short version of it is if you'd like to join the clubs that we've talked about, then go onto our homepage and uh, there's a link to a Google form and give us your details and we'll we'll tell you more. Wonderful. I'll absolutely put this in the show notes and make it nice and easy for everybody to yeah, find. I, I suspect you, you may see a few more Aussies coming through <laughs> in the next few weeks, which which I love and would encourage. You really do have a an oversight and an overview of so many different in-house council, hundreds of us all around the world, all different industries, companies and the collective uh, knowledge of that would just be completely outstanding. With your your great oversight, what what are you seeing as the key trends in the industry at the moment? What is everybody really kind of fascinated by and interested in? Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Mel. And as an aside, this it I think it's true that like, through this community in particular, we we are just hearing so much. Like every week, we're just the people are so generous with their insights and their time so we're learning an awful lot and i i can see a future where there maybe there is something like crafty council insights or crafty council research something like that because mm. it would be kind of a waste not to try and do something with there's that. a lot of data points mm. there i'm sure yeah so that's a thought for the future but in terms of trends i guess i mean firstly one caveat i'm a lawyer that one thing we're seeing through the community is there is such diversity of experience knowledge sectors we ran you know an interesting anecdote is we ran some sessions recently where we did the same topic across different different ones of our club groups and topic was working with alternative legal service providers so the likes of lawyers on demand axiom elevate services those sorts of businesses and we were asking, you know, what are your experiences? What do you want to share? What do you want to know? And the level of experience was so different. You know, one of these calls, half of these people had worked for LSPs or worked through them. Another one, um, really high level of insight from a bunch of different general counsel who had made really creative use of that those sorts of businesses, you know, combining LSPs and law firms on different matters, you know, disaggregating, taking you know, one bit, maybe the due diligence goes to an ALSP, but the law firm does something else. And then we, one of our other clubs 
nobody had any experience of working with them. And the reaction was just, why would we use them rather than a law firm? And I think it just goes to show actually how different everyone's, how different it can be, everyone's different experiences. So that all said, I guess a few themes I've seen coming through recently. I think the whole area of empowering the business and together with that, I guess, self-serve as a manifestation of that, that keeps on coming up. And you know, that's coming from a place of, you know, le- the whole more for less thing, which some people have issues with that phrase, but you know, legal being pushed to do more and more, the legal team can't grow in size or budget in in lockstep with the size of the business. So at some point, you know, there's a problem there. And how do you how do you either get some efficiencies or how how do you do things in a different way? A lot of in-house counsel finding the answer is by empowering the business to do more. So just this week, we had a club where people were talking about this in the context of sales agreements. What can what can the sales team agree themselves without coming back to legal? What should they come back to legal for? And this sort of tension between, on the one hand, some lawyers finding that they've got a governance problem with rogue contracts getting signed and legal not having proper oversight and risk being taken on. Others are saying, we're at the other end of this. These guys keep on coming back to us with questions that you know really shouldn't be for us. And they should feel that they can sign this off and, and make those decisions themselves. So I think I'm hearing a lot of people having some version of how can we empower the business appropriately while not coming across like we're not doing our jobs and not willing to help. And that's, that's, that's a hard group of things in there. Definitely some people finding technology helps, but most often in tandem with, with some hard work on the cultural side to make sure there's, there's real alignment on that. So I think that is a, I think that's a hot area. So empowering the business. I think careers is just a perennial big area for people. We ran a session recently on which we call the path to general counsel. And the reason we ran it was because one of the lawyers in our community said he came to an event that we ran on career changes. So lawyers had gone and done different things. And he said, look, I'd really love a session on path to GC. So we're trying to be responsive to the community. And we ran that. And we, what we try to do is when we get a guest speaker, we advertise that across all the clubs. And then we say, look, everyone can come to this one. And so we did that. We had two guest speakers. One, actually, you've seen on screen was Harge Gill, who was in that SAS video you referenced. So he talked about his path to the GC role, and he's actually just moved to a new GC role, so he talked a bit about that. And we also had a guy called Chris Hurst, who is MD, a recruitment business that we partner with, called Carlisle Kingswood Global, CKG. And they shared their thoughts on the path, and in Chris's case, very candid insights from the recruiter's perspective on who's getting roles, who isn't getting roles, what his clients are asking for in terms of background and skill set, the people who are getting to the final leg, but then maybe something doesn't go quite right. And that was a really popular session. And we made oh, some I content off, off the back of that. And that also was very popular. So it's kind of interesting. The you know, legal tech, legal operations, innovation, these are all very hot areas in the moment, but mm. we're finding also anything that is touching on people's career paths and where they want to go, 
And then associated with that, where should they go? The, the well-being side, mental health, all of that, that, that really resonates with our community. So much insight there. And it gives, I think it gives the listeners a taste of the true breadth of the content that you're putting out. And that's, wow, sensational. And, and to have insight like that from, from a leading recruiter and to pick their brain, I mean, that, <laughs> you don't get to do that very often. I do so appreciate you spending Saturday morning with me and our Saturday evening. I'll, I'll start to wrap it up there because we are coming to the top of the hour and I, I want to respect your time. I, I want to thank you for coming and sharing and being so so open with your career path and, and I can really hear the passion in your voice when we talk about Crafty Council. It, it's clear to me it's the, it's all things for you. You're, you're, just, you're in it, you're, you're living and breathing it and it shows because it's a wonderful it is a wonderful community and a great product and great conversations that happen. So from a fan, please keep it up. It's it's invaluable. Well, Mel, thank, thank you. That's really kind. And thank you for being part of the community and also doing what you're doing. I'm loving, I'm loving the podcast. And it was such a, it was such a treat that you invited me to come onto it. So um, yeah, really uh, very grateful. I'm so glad we have a similar a similar why I suspect in wanting to create content of value for this particular community and we both saw different openings in, in ways to do that and I, I chose this medium and, and you've you've really you know taken taken it to a, a step further and across multiple mediums but we're, we're both I, I think bonded by that similar vision so I think that's yeah I think that's great and there's lots yeah. of us out there there's a great community of people and we're all really opening up and sharing and no longer behind fortresses and separated from each other. It's it's a great time to be in-house, I think, from, yeah, that, from that aspect. I couldn't agree with you more. It's been one of the real pleasures of this journey is then discovering so many people who are like you, sort of looking at the world in a similar way. And it's become, you know, people are very open and very generous with their time. So yeah, that's been a, a great part of the of the journey so far. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Ben, and I'll let you get back to your Saturday morning. Great. Thanks very much, Mel. Thank you for listening to this episode of Council. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review for this podcast. Tell me what you'd love to hear more of and where you are listening from. I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn, Instagram, or even Clubhouse check out the show notes for all of these links.